Uh, we're in Matthew, if you open your Bible or navigate on your device to Matthew 18 and to verses 21 through 35. That will be our text this morning. The topic in that text, Jesus stuns his disciples by telling them that they must forgive others up to 70 times seven times. The title of our message, The Magnificent 70 Times Seven. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, you're good to us. You're good all the time. You work all things together for the good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I pray for any of us, all of us, Lord, here today who are struggling with the good that you're working out in our life because things are not so good on the surface. There's a stress, there's a struggle, there's a pain, Lord. I pray that we would claim your promise and your promises that we would receive and, and even feel your love today in this place. We have things to learn, Lord, from your text as we make progress in the Gospel of Matthew, but we're really here to have a conversation with you, to hear from you and to talk to you. And so I pray, Lord, that with all of this as our background, with worship having come forth from our hearts, that you and I, you and each individual here would, would have a time together a rich, fulfilling, intimate time of fellowship. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You know what a three strikes law is and does. It's a statute enacted by state governments in the United States which mandates state courts to impose harsher sentences on habitual offenders who are convicted of three or more serious criminal offenses. Like them or not, and some people don't, three strikes laws represent our feeling that you should only give a repeat offender so many chances. The Jews in the first century had a type of three strikes law, at least they had a three strikes mentality. The rabbis, citing several verses from the prophet Amos out of Amos chapter one, taught that since God forgave Israel's enemies only three times, it was presumptuous and unnecessary to forgive anyone more than three times. One rabbi whose writings we have said this, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive him. Now, Peter more than doubled that when he said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus blew Peter's doors off saying in response, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. How is that even possible? Well, that's what we need to find out today. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your forgiveness doesn't have a limit. And number two, your forgiveness does have a leniency. Let's take a look at uh, limitless forgiveness in verses 21 and 22. Now these verses, of course, don't stand alone. Jesus had just instructed his followers how we are to proceed when one among us sins. We're to go to the sinning brother or sister one-on-one, -on -one, tell them they are in sin, seek to gain them back into fellowship with us and with the Lord. If they will not confess their sin and repent, we are to go to them two or three-on-one. If they will not confess their sin and repent, we are to tell the church if they still will not confess their sin and repent, we are to treat the sinning brother or sister as a heathen or as a tax collector. This was the subject that we dealt with last time we were together. Now, mulling this over, Peter wanted to know 
how to deal with a repeat offender. It's really a very insightful question. What about the person that keeps offending? He was familiar with the rabbis and their three strikes approach, but he had heard Jesus teach that our righteousness must exceed that of even the most religious Jews. So he suggested this amplified version of three strikes. Verse 21, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Peter doubled it and added one for good measure. I might notice, you know, we kind of always come from this point of view. Uh, What about the person that sins against me? It would have been better if Peter had said, Lord, what if I sin against my brother a bunch of times? Is he gonna be able to forgive me? It's more likely that, you know, uh, I'm gonna sin against someone than they're gonna sin against me, or at least we should have that kind of humility. But, you know, Peter's trying to get a handle on this, and so uh, he doubles it and adds one for good measure, and that's the problem, because forgiveness by its very nature, it cannot be measured. A three strikes law makes sense in the civil courts to protect society from habitual offenders, but we cannot have that mentality when discussing the spiritual quality of forgiveness. Here's why. If you are a Christian, God has in Jesus Christ forgiven you. Is there a limit to God's forgiveness of you? Well, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression or our sin from us. Adam Clark said of this verse, and I quote, as the east and the west can never meet in one point, but be forever at the same distance from each other, so our sins and their decreed punishment are removed to an eternal distance by God's mercy. Albert Barnes said, and I quote, We are safe from all condemnation for our sins as if they had not been committed at all. William McDonald said, and I quote, the believer in his sins will never meet. Those sins have been put out of God's sight forever by a miracle of love. In Isaiah 38, verse 17, we read, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Behind the back is a strong figure for an out of sight, out of mind picture. Casting behind the back implies a resolute, determined purpose. It's as if God had thoroughly made up his mind that he would never look upon them again. He was done with them forever. In Micah 7.19, we read, he will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Nothing brings to us a sense of hopeless, irretrievable loss like dropping a thing into the fathomless depths of the middle ocean. It is with that understanding of God's limitless forgiveness that Jesus frames his answer to Peter. He says, I do not say to you, verse 22, up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Jesus multiplied the number not to set a limit or to measure forgiveness, but to actually show that it cannot be measured. It cannot be limited. It's like trying to measure the distance between the east and the west. It's something that just cannot be done. Forgiveness is never a quantity. It is a quality. It is a spiritual quality. It might be a good time to pause and discuss exactly what we mean by forgiveness, or at the very least to say a few important things about the quality of biblical forgiveness. What is it really like? What are we really talking about? And I'll start with this because it, uh, it's a little bit different. Um, it's what the Bible teaches, but we don't think about it this way very often. Forgiveness is not unconditional. Forgiveness is not 
unconditional. God does not forgive unconditionally. His forgiveness has clear, unmistakable conditions. Both Jesus as well as the apostles after him preached repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's Luke 24 and Acts 17. In the parallel passage to this in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, and I quote, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, then you shall forgive him. Now, this word translated repent means to turn or to turn around. It indicates a turnaround and about face, you might say, in your thinking that leads to an about face in your behavior. You were going one way, now you're turned around and going the other way. You were sinning, now you're pursuing holiness. There can be no granting of forgiveness without this change of mind and turning from sin. If there was forgiveness apart from repentance, everyone would automatically be saved. And they are not, only whosoever believes in Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of Jesus Christ is available to the entire human race, to whosoever will believe, but it is only effective in those who actually believe. Non-believers die in their sins and do not experience the forgiveness of their sins because forgiveness is conditional. I might add that the very fact there is a procedure set forth in this chapter for dealing with sin proves that forgiveness is not unconditional. Here's what I mean. Jesus didn't say, if your brother sins against you, forgive him unconditionally. Just go on with life as if nothing happened. No, he said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. We tell the one in sin so they will confess. True confession has been described as an agreement with another who is in agreement with God's word. I like that. I like that a lot. And so we identify someone is in sin, meaning they are disobeying a clear directive commandment of God's word. We are spiritual, not in the sense that we're not sinners, but we're not living in sin. We're not committing sin. We're not habitually sinning. We're in agreement with God's word. We go to that person and we try to get them to agree with what God has said. And when they confess, it means, confess actually means to agree. They say, I agree, this is sin, and I turn from my sin. I repent of it and I leave it. You cannot skip confession and repentance and get to real biblical forgiveness any other way. You are therefore not obligated to forgive someone who is unrepentant. Instead, you are obligated to continue to urge them to repent. Now, I hope that is somewhat liberating for you. Most of the cultural voices are telling you to forgive unconditionally. And it sounds spiritual. Doesn't it sound spiritual? Don't you sound so much more spiritual if you say, well, I just, I just unconditionally forgive everyone. I'm so magnanimous, I, I just forgive everyone no matter what they do. Jesus says, you know what you're obligated to do is to go to them and tell them they're in sin and to seek their confession and repentance so that you can forgive them so that reconciliation can take place. And there's a much bigger issue here than being magnanimous. And people get into all kinds of strange things we don't have time to talk about this morning, but you, you know, some people want you to forgive animals or uh, to forgive whole people groups, to forgive entire nations. None of that is biblical. We're talking about biblical forgiveness, which requires confession, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Now, here's something else we need to understand about forgiveness. It's not a feeling. 
It's not based on feelings. In the process Jesus outlined, he never suggests that you must wait until you feel like forgiving the unrepentant sinner or the repentant sinner, rather. And that's why, as near as I can explain it, forgiveness must be a promise that you make in response to repentance. God promises to forgive you when he says in Isaiah 43, verse 25, I will not remember your sins. He says the same thing in Jeremiah 31, 34, sin I will remember no more. Remembering no more or not remembering is different than forgetting. God cannot forget our sins because he is, after all, omniscient. And we cannot even suggest that God could forget something. God doesn't have some kind of a, Uh, you know, deific amnesia or Alzheimer's disease where he just doesn't, I I thought I had some sin around here somewhere. It just doesn't happen. So he doesn't forget, but he says, I don't remember it. I choose not to remember your sins. That means he'll never bring them up. He'll never hold them against us. He can do that because Jesus died for our sins on the cross. When I confess him as my savior and repent and by faith am saved, my sins are as far away from me as the east is from the west. They are no more remembered by my father in heaven. When the conditions are met, his forgiveness is limitless. It is conditional, but when the conditions are met, it is limitless. And so must ours be of those who repent. Now, that sounds amazing. It sounds spiritual. I actually want to forgive that way, but the truth be told, I'm a three strikes guy. Well, if you want to get really down to the nitty gritty, I'm a one strike guy. In my flesh, in my uh, unredeemed humanness, you might say, if somebody sins against me, or maybe is just out in sin, period, hey, that's it. That person's dead to me. Thank goodness I have God's nature in me. I have the Holy Spirit living in me who is prompting me, telling me that person is as valuable as the sheep who wandered from the fold, whom the shepherd would leave the 90 and 9 to go after. How can I then practice limitless forgiveness? Well, your forgiveness does have a leniency in verses 23 through 35. Jesus illustrated what he meant by the telling of an often misunderstood parable, or at least parts of it are misunderstood. It is this parable of the unforgiving servant. I wanna read it in full, it's just straightforward. There's not a lot of uh, things to misunderstand in it, but let's read it. Beginning in verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. He would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. 
Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers, or your Bible might say tormentors, until he should pay all that was due to him. Now, an allegory, it's something that's filled with symbolism, and most, if not all, of its details will signify something else. Not so a parable. A parable is usually making one single big point. We will not find an exact counterpart for every detail in a parable. In fact, we should not, or else we start to make the parable say something more than was intended. In this parable, for for instance, the king obviously represents God, but not every action of this earthly king has a correspondence to our heavenly father. Some of it is just in the flow of the story. And so it's wrong to see uh, this king's attitude as the attitude of our heavenly father. Peter had asked a question about how many times we are required to forgive a repeat offender. The question exposes the natural reluctance to go on forgiving someone. The parable of the unforgiving servant is told to show us the error of our natural reluctance to forgive others, especially when they are multiple offenders. The certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants represents God as he surveys the human race. The one who owed him 10,000 talents represents the uh, non-believing sinner. A talent isn't a coin. It is a weight of measure, of precious metals. The sum owed here would be in the millions upon millions of dollars, depending on the metal involved. The exact amount is not given because that's not the point. The point is, it's a debt that could never hope to be paid by the servant, not in this lifetime, not in a hundred lifetimes. The debt represents sin as a man or woman before God. Sin that a man or woman has before God. Like the servant, the sinner goes through life as if there will be no accounting for it, no reckoning of it by God. But then something arrests their attention, some crisis perhaps. The grace of God that is operating to free the will brings the person to a place where you see the crushing weight of debt that you owe God in terms of your sin. The person is terrified knowing that they can never save themselves. They might even make empty resolutions to change. In the parable, it's clear that this servant could never pay this debt, but he acts like he can. And and we see that all the time with people who are, are in sin and they think, well, this time I'll get help. This time I'll quit. I'll clean myself up and then God will be pleased with me. And so what this is representing is that point in a person's life where they come to the knowledge that they are a hell-doomed sinner and they begin to be crushed under the weight of sin that they can do absolutely nothing about. Not in this lifetime, not in a hundred million lifetimes. Some of you have been saved later in life. You understand what I'm talking about. Maybe better than some who have been Christians your whole life. It's not that makes you second class or anything. It's just a different experience. I can remember the exact moment when the weight of sin began to crush my heart. Where I was, what I was doing, God had been dealing with me. I, always, I grew up in a religious tradition. I always knew I was a sinner. I mean, come on, you know. But I wasn't Adolf Hitler. I wasn't Charles Manson. I mean, I wasn't a really bad guy. So 
I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but I'd probably be okay. You know, God would weigh things out, good, bad. As long as I had a little bit more on the good side, I was fine. Then all of a sudden, what happens? The scale gets obliterated. There's nothing on the good side. All there is is sin. Black, wicked sin. Sin that's imputed to you because you're a child of Adam and Eve. Individual sin that you've committed. It's crazy. And in that moment, I was so terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I knew that if I died in my sins, I'd be hopelessly lost. And I knew I deserved to be. And then I found Christ. And he took all of that weight off and replaced it with his beautiful righteousness. So that's what this parable is talking about. That's what you would hope would happen to this servant, that he would come to that realization of how much he'd been forgiven. And those of you who've gotten saved like that, what happens? <laughs> you forgive everybody. All of a sudden, everything's great. You, they, you owe me a million dollars, God bless you. You wrecked my car yesterday, I love you. You've been doing this, hey, nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina. I mean, you know, you're just, you're just crazy with, you know, you're just, you're so excited to have been forgiven your sin. Such a weight has been lifted. You can't imagine, what do I care what you did to me? You shot me in the face, all right. You probably had a good reason for it. I mean, it's, it's just that kind of a moment. All you can do is throw yourself on the mercy of the king and then you find yourself being merciful. Jesus paid the price for your sin. And that's why we can have this experience. In the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, rather, the only place it's found, Jesus, uh, at the end of his crucifixion, his final statement was what? It is finished. To Tetelestai in the Greek, it's actually an accounting term that means paid in full. He paid the price, the debt that was owed for our sin. What would you then expect from the servant in this parable who had been forgiven this incalculable debt? You'd expect him to show compassion and mercy to anybody who owed him a far lesser sum. Instead, he immediately finds a fellow servant who owes him a very small amount. Second debtor appeals to him in the same way he had appealed to the king. But instead of compassion, the first servant had contempt and he refused to forgive the debt. Upon hearing about the unforgiving servant, the king rebuked him and had him thrown into prison. The unforgiving servant represents us when we are reluctant to forgive a brother or sister who has met the condition of repentance. In, a, in essence, what Jesus is saying, Peter, if you want to put a limit to forgiveness, who do you think you are in this parable? You are the unforgiving servant. You don't want to be that guy. How can we who have been forgiven so much by God withhold forgiveness from those who sin or sins against us are far less than ours against God? We who have been forgiven an infinite debt ought to be willing to forgive others an insignificant debt. Now, if there is confession and repentance and we refuse to forgive, we are exactly like the unforgiving servant. When we do promise our forgiveness and reconcile, then we are acting exactly like our heavenly father in his relationship to us. Now, let me address a perceived difficulty or two in this parable. In the final verse, we haven't read it yet, but verse 35, Jesus says, so my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. On the surface, it seems to be saying that the king or God will withdraw his forgiveness from you unless you forgive others. 
That cannot be true for the simple fact that it would make salvation depend upon good works to maintain it. Salvation or eternal life has nothing to do with good works or lack of them. It is always a free gift of grace when you trust Jesus Christ to save you. We need to distinguish between two kinds of forgiveness. Theologians call them judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. Now those are good names in that you can pretty much guess what they stand for without a lot of explanation and they make sense to you. When a person comes to the cross, confesses their sin, repents and believes in Jesus Christ, God as a judge forgives their sin once and for all. He remembers it no more. He casts it behind his back, he drops it into the depths of the sea. They will not, they cannot be judged for their sin, past, present, or future, and condemned by it to hell. It is a, it is a once for all forgiveness of sin by the judge who can condemn you. That condemnation has been borne by Jesus Christ uh, once and for all. That saved person is now a child of God, placed in the family of God. God is their father. As father, he is training us daily to obey him and thereby grow in our maturity. We still disobey, just like kids in any family. When we sin, we need to ask forgiveness of our father. We need to be restored to fellowship with him. If not, we become subject to his loving but firm parental discipline. Now, I don't know what kind of disciplinarian you are if you're a parent. You might be a really good one. You might be one of those ones that we see in the market all the time, giving your kid 100 chances. <laughs> don't touch that candy bar. Put that candy bar down. Don't unwrap that candy bar. Don't eat a part of that candy bar. He ate a part of the candy bar, so I have to buy it now. You're never gonna watch television again for the rest of your life. Well, that actually happened. But anyway, <laughs> similar. But at some point, at some point you understand there's a parental discipline. You don't look at the kid and say, you, you take that candy bar, you put that candy bar in your mouth and I'm leaving you here at the store because you're not my son anymore. I don't know who you are. Mom. I mean, so there's a judicial forgiveness and then there's a family kind of a thing. And so, you know, people say, well, you don't have to ask God to forgive you because, you know, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, he did. And he paid the debt for your sin, past, present, and future, judicially, but you're now in a family. And Jesus said, if there's sin in the family, you go to the person and you deal with it. And there has to be confession and repentance and forgiveness of sin. It's the most normal thing in the world. And so that's what's happening in this uh, this last verse, it's about parental forgiveness, not judicial forgiveness. God is not saying that if you don't have a high level of forgiveness, you've lost your salvation. Now, another thing that disturbs people is the, in the parable is the torturers. This might simply be part of the storytelling, meaning that it doesn't have to have a symbolic meaning. If you want to assign some spiritual meaning to it, it refers to the biblical truth that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. In the parable, this is what happened, and by the way, this would not be a Jewish scene. This is not how the Jews dealt with debts. This was a Gentile king and Gentiles throwing him into prison, doing all of that, and, and having him tortured or tormented. That simply represents the fact that there's going to be some discipline against uh, the person who is refusing to forgive because God is your father, 
and he disciplines you because he loves you the way any father would. Now, the most important words in this entire study might be from his heart. And here's why I say that. None of us can really forgive others the way God has forgiven us without his empowering to do so. We have a tendency to read something like this. We get to this point and we think, okay, Lord, I get it. What are the three things I have to do to develop this heart of forgiveness? Um, What do I meditate on? What do I read? What do I study? What do I do? And I think it's best to just come to become aghast and say, I can't do this. Jesus is suggesting that if somebody comes and sins against me seven times in a day and repents, that seven times I'm going to forgive them or that 490 times I'm going to forgive them. And I just have to say, yeah, that's not me. I'm a one-strike guy. I'm a three-strikes guy. I'm just, I cannot do that in my natural state. But I can do it, and I can do it immediately if I'm walking in the Spirit because He will empower me to do it. And I think maybe sometimes we're struggling to forgive people because we're trying to figure out how it feels or how to do it when the Lord is just telling us to do it and He's given us the power and we need to yield to that. It is supernaturally possible for you as a Christian because you are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. I must therefore yield to the Spirit and promise to forgive in response to repentance. Now this is where this repentance becomes important because if there is genuine repentance, I've found that it elicits merciful forgiveness. I don't know how many, I, you know, as a pastor, I'm privileged to sit with people in what you might call counseling or discipleship sessions over the years, whether it's a marriage or some other relationship or some other situation. And there are times when all of a sudden, all I, all I can say, I, I don't want to sound mystical, but all I can say is that God breaks through. There is genuine repentance. Is it because there's one more tear or one more pleading. I don't, it's just genuine. There is genuine repentance and genuine repentance seems to elicit from a Christian the promise of limitless forgiveness. I've experienced that myself in our marriage early on. That's what happened when I got saved. Pam and I forgave ourselves, or not ourselves, forgave each other in a limitless way. And, And there was repentance and forgiveness. It was wonderful. The problem is, so often people just don't repent. It's like, well, you know, yeah, I did that, but, well, you know, anybody would have done that. Sorry, I'm sorry it bothered you, but, you know, it's not a magic thing. It's not, hey, you know, you did that. Okay, I repent. It's hard. I wish I could... I've been in situations, too, where people, they try and, you know, quantify, repent. Well, now you have to do this. Ah, you, you can't say, it's hard to say when a person is genuinely repent. All I know is that it just, it can happen. And so maybe you're struggling today thinking, why can't I forgive that person? Why is this bothering me? You know why? Because they haven't repented. And what you're obligated to do is to look at them the way Jesus does and say, that person's like a tax collector or a heathen. They need to repent. They maybe aren't even a Christian that's far worse than what they've done to me. 
And so now you can start to have the proper heart towards them. It doesn't mean there won't be an ongoing struggle in your heart when you promise to forgive someone. I mean, I've been with people who, I mean, they've been, they've had, I mean, all I can say is just big sins. I mean, just, you talk about multiple sins. I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe not 490, but pretty close. And, And there's a struggle afterwards because the flesh and the spirit war. And the devil doesn't want you to emulate Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to be like the Father. He doesn't want you to have compassion and forgiveness. And so he's going to suggest, hey, that person didn't really repent. They're doing it again and again, you know, this and this and that. And so there is a struggle. But you can nevertheless promise to act the way God acts, and that is to not bring that sin up, to not live in that sin, to not hold that sin against the person. Doesn't mean that there won't be consequences either. Depending on the sin, I might be able to forgive the offender, but things may not be able immediately or ever to go back to the way they were. You see this sometimes when a a Christian leader, let's say, falls into sin and has to confess and repent. That's great and we forgive, but that doesn't mean that that person can go right back to their pulpit or right back to their ministry. They just can't because there are consequences to their actions. And so there can be genuine repentance and merciful forgiveness that doesn't mean consequences are always erased. Your forgiveness should have a certain leniency. And by that, I mean you should always be ready to forgive an offense because of how much you've been forgiven by God and on account of what it cost, the death of Jesus Christ. But you need to pursue it biblically and see the person who has sinned confess and repent, then there's forgiveness, then there's reconciliation. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. When you're having trouble promising forgiveness, remembering someone's sin no more, when it's hard to cast it behind your back and drop it into some ocean, think about how much you've been forgiven by God at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I dare say, there are, Sometimes are Christians, and, and you're genuinely saved. There's, you know, I'm not saying that a person wouldn't be. But sometimes Christians, you forget just how much you deserve to go to hell. Uh, that's all I can say. I mean, it, you know, it, I think there's a tendency all of us have to want to say, well, yeah, I was, I was a sinner. Like I said earlier, I was a, I was a, I'm a run-of-the-mill sinner. I'm, you know, on the sin continuum. You know, in school, they've graded on the curve. You know, over here, there's some priests and monks and, you know, rabbis and people. (laughs) Over here, wow. There's like some demon-possessed people over here. I'm somewhere in the bell curve. (laughs) Most time, I'm on this, you know, I'm I'm on the plus side. I'm I'm heading towards sainthood. Oops, then I sin. I'm, you know, wow. But, you know, the gap between me and Adolf Hitler is so vast that... God's, when I see the Lord, I'm going to say, hey, Lord, uh, I got one word for you, Hitler. <laughs> You're in. Wow, I hadn't thought about it like that before. Wow. There's a picture of one of my favorite, I don't know why it's one of my favorite pictures, but it, I think it's because it communicates so much. In the Old Testament, uh, Joshua the high priest, not Joshua the, uh, the leader after Moses, but Joshua the high priest He's standing before the Lord in the temple. And man, you know the high priest? That guy is decked out. That is GQ. 
I mean, the hat and the, you know, the gemstones on a breastplate and silver and gold and blue. And, you know, the, the, the blue is from a special dye that comes from a special snail that comes from a special place in the ocean. I mean, this guy is, you know, wow. He's been washed and bathed and, I mean, he's, he's good to go ministering before the Lord and then you get heaven's perspective on that guy representing all of the nation of Israel who are God's chosen people and he's represented in heaven as wearing filthy garments. All of his own righteousness and who he is and who the nation is and who everybody is is filthy before a thrice holy God. And I get the, do you ever, my dad used to talk, I used to, my dad, he told me very little about his life but he always used to like to tell me that when he was a kid one of his first jobs was pumping cesspools. Now, a cesspool is not a septic tank. I'd have a hard time pumping septic tanks, but at least it's contained. A cesspool is just where excrement pools in an open way, and you get a hose in there, and you start, hopefully you don't do a suction thing, but you know. (laughs) I'm trying to be a little bit gross because now I'm looking at Joshua the high priest, and he's covered in human excrement. Wow. And Satan is accusing him there. That on top of all that, the devil comes along and says, ah, look at that guy, he's so dirty. And then the Lord comes and he says, take those garments off, I've got some garments for him. And he clothes him with his robe of righteousness. So if you're having trouble forgiving someone who has repented genuinely, fall into the cesspool, figuratively speaking. Remember what you were like before God, before you got saved. That infinite forgiveness should cause you a limitless compassion for others. Amen?